I'm Shannon Caldwell Montez, and you're listening to Gospel Tangent. The best source for Mormon history, science, and theology. I'm Rick Bennett. I'm excited to have Shannon Caldwell Montez on the show. She's the author of a thesis at the University of Nevada, Reno, The Secret Mormon Meetings of 1922. So I printed it out, cost me 37 bucks. <laughs> anyway, it's a, it's a fantastic read. We're going to talk a little bit about B.H. Roberts and the uh, secret meetings of 1922. He was the first leader to bring to the First Presidency and the Quorum of Twelve Apostles some of the problematic issues with the Book of Mormon. So we'll talk about some of the first attempts at a limited geography theory. We'll talk about people who attended these meetings. Uh, there were a series of meetings and we'll get a little bit of a biography on some of them including Richard Lyman, who was the last apostle uh, excommunicated for polygamy, or was it adultery? We're going to talk a little bit about that. And some of the other interesting characters, both men and women, that attended these meetings. So you won't want to miss this conversation. Check it out. Welcome to Gospel Tangents. I have an amazing historian here with us today. And uh, could you tell us who you are and why we're here today talking? I, my name is Shannon Caldwell Montes. Uh -huh. I um, got a master's degree in history a couple of years ago and I did my thesis called The Secret Mormon Meetings of 1922. And in this I talk about B.H. Roberts and a bunch of series of meetings and just had a lot of fun exploring Mormon history and that's what we'll talk about today. Nice, nice. So I always like to get people's background. I know you went to Nevada, Reno. Where'd you get your bachelor's degree? University of Utah. Oh, a Utah man you are. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, good. I went to Utah, too. I, go red. Yeah, choose yeah. the red. That's, yeah. what, that's what people need to know. <laughs> so that's awesome. And you get your bachelor's in history as history. well? History, yeah. So you're just history through and through. I just, you know, raised Mormon. I was like, I'm not going to really need this. I'll just do what I like. I'll right. have some fun going to college and... And that's what I've done. I've just kind of gone to college to follow my interest more than pursue money and career. <laughs> <laughs> well, I went for math and statistics, and uh, this is my hobby, so. <laughs> yeah, that's probably better as a hobby. <laughs> <laughs> well, cool. So, what, uh, you know, I, don't, I, I never majored in history. So what gave you this idea to, to talk about these secret 1922 meetings? Well, it was a process. Um, I was originally going to be talking about, like, my proposal for my thesis was what happens when someone's foundational beliefs get challenged. And I had some, Prot the Protestant Reformation, I had, you know, all these ideas where basic beliefs get challenged and then the religious views can kind of change based on that. Um, so my idea originally was to, I knew these meetings had happened with B.H. Roberts and the general authorities, and I was hoping to look in their journals and see if I could see a before and after. I didn't, I think I was a little naive, and I didn't anticipate the fact that these journals would be very hard to obtain. Um, so after looking for a while and trying all of the avenues I could, I did find a couple of entries that were interesting to me that um, kind of indicated that there were more than just general authorities at some of these meetings. And I was able to then find, based on one of the general authorities' journals, 
other journal that had an, a bunch more names and um, I was able to piece together this group of people. I call them Mormon intelligentsia, but they were experts in different um, scientific fields that could speak to archaeology and linguistics and all of these problems that B.H. Roberts was talking about in his papers. So it ended up being more an exploration of those than it was about any, you know, a, a broader religious change. But my um, advisor was, I have to credit her, I said, I found out about these meetings, I don't know what to do with it, and she's like, you should explore this. And I was like, but I still, I, like, she really helped direct me and point me to get this finished product because I kept doubting myself all along. What if it's just some kind of book club and <laughs> um, <laughs> questions like that? But she's like, no, this is really important. And by the time I got there, she, you know, obviously she knew what she was doing. And I was like, wow, this really is important. And I, I really love what I found. And it gives us a really cool snapshot of uh what Mormonism was like in the early, you know, they got past the frontier stage and then they were trying to figure out where to go to become more modern America. And this was their kind of like decision point. So that was a really great thing for me to study. Well, now you went to Nevada, Reno, right? Mm -hmm. Is that where you live now? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And so I've always wondered, I mean, Nevada's kind of in the Mountain West, but you know, when you're doing religious history, is that like a normal thing to do outside of Utah? I mean, in Utah, everybody would be like, oh, yeah, Mormon history, of course. Yeah. But how was it in Nevada? <laughs> well, it was a lot harder to access documents. I basically had to go to Utah to do all of my research. Uh-huh. Um, but it was, yeah, it was fun because not everyone had this, you know, background knowing everything about Mormon history. So they were able to give me different perspectives that I hadn't, that I'm not sure I would have um, had had I not, had they been more familiar with it. So were your, your advisors were open to doing a thesis on Mormon history? Yeah, and some of them had religious, uh, you know, had studied religion in other contexts. It just wasn't necessarily Mormonism. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, they were, they were great. And I chose Reno because that's where I was living. It wasn't that, you know, they have the best religious history degree it was you know my kids were in high school and I was like let's do this I want to go back to school and yeah um so that's what I did it had always been a dream to get a master's so I decided to finally get it so oh, I I took a big break between my bachelor's and master's degree so I think we have some parallels there <laughs> <laughs> yeah 20 so, years or so yeah I was I was 15 in between hmm. when I when I started it so well, interesting. So, um, so how did you find out about these secret meetings, first of all, in order to, so the, to pick this as a topic? The first, so I knew there were meetings just based on the book by, I mean, it's edited by Brigham Robert, or Brigham Madsen. Um, he, in 1980, late 1970s, actually, they had found B.H. Roberts' papers, and then they put them all together, added them, and put it into a book that was published in 1985. So you can go read these B.H. Roberts papers. Um, it's called Studies of the Book of Mormon, and it's edited by um, Brigham Madsen. Um, this was published in 1985. 
Um, unfortunately, 1985 was also a very big year with uh, Mark Hoffman bombing. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I think this got a little bit buried. In And besides, we didn't have the Internet. We didn't have people just getting together to talk about all these things. So I don't think it got people the... People weren't getting blown up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, once people got blown up, that everything kind of went that way. And nobody was looking at... Um, what these B.H. Roberts papers. They did make a splash, but I think I was really honestly surprised at how surprised people were about these meetings when I first started, you know, when I talked about my thesis and people were like, what is this? And I was like, well, we've known about this since 1985. But, um, but yeah, everyone was surprised and had kind of forgotten about this episode where B.H. Roberts had written these documents and presented it to the general authorities. Um, and it's mentioned in that book, but I did want to know more about that. I was like, that's really interesting. I want, I want more detail on that. And the, that book was about the papers more than these meetings. So I just was like, I want to little, know a little bit more about those meetings. And so... That's what I went for. And so this is a little bit, you know, it goes deeper in my thesis than it did in that book. And then I also go into depth about each person that I knew of that were in these meetings. So, um, yeah, that's what the thesis is. Well, very good. Okay, so the idea was, and I, I'm trying to remember how it was. I read this over the last two days really fast. <laughs> so I didn't get to, like, delve in there really deep. But... Uh, the idea was B.H. Roberts had some questions about the authenticity of the Book of Mormon, Book of Mormon geography, that sort of a thing. And the the story is he played a devil's advocate. And then there's right. a, another question about, well, did he lose his testimony while doing this study? Can you can you answer those questions or should we save that for later? <laughs> no, I can I can never I can answer to my best ability. Mm-hmm. Um don't remember what your first question is. I've already forgotten it. But did B.H. Roberts lose his testimony? I would say he became more nuanced. I would say he believed that... I, I, I think he did the journey a lot of us Mormons do. We go from a literal belief to a utility belief where you think, you know, whether or not this happened, I find value in it. I think that's where he ended up. I see when you look at when you look at his um, writings at the end of his life and the, the, after these meetings, I'm saying, they were, they were a lot more generically Christian than they were specifically Mormon a lot of the time. So I think he was still Christian. I think he still believed um, that God and Jesus were important entities for us to be focused on. Um, but as far as a literal belief in the Book of Mormon, I don't see how he could have had I don't think he could believe this story as it had been presented. He knew that the geology, the geography, the linguistics, the archaeology, everything did not fit the Book of Mormon. And when you look at the papers he wrote, whether or not he was playing devil's advocate, you know, there's facts in here that he he's presenting that he's... And he's asking the 12... How do we do this? How do we overcome these? Please help me get revelation from God. And they basically said, let's not talk about this again. And sent him off on a mission. And yeah, didn't want to talk. 
So. Okay, so as early as 1922, is that when the first meeting was? Mm-hmm. It's because there was a series of three meetings, right? Right. And so the idea was B.H. Roberts had Well, some... actually, there's more than that. Okay, Sorry. go ahead. There was three meetings with the general authorities. There were also three meetings, at least three meetings, with the intelligentsia. So once B.H. Roberts had talked to the general authorities, and he didn't find answers there, he also began speaking with groups of, you know, a whole bunch of people with PhDs, which was very rare in Utah. So he had gathered, a, and I, I was not able to figure out how, who, who put these meetings together, how people got invited. I couldn't find any documentation about them at all besides some mentions in people's um, journals. And they, did they take place at Henry Moyle's house? Yes. So yeah. all three that I know about, there may have been another. All three meetings were at Henry Moyle's house, yes. And that's right downtown Salt Lake. You yeah, have a picture, there's a picture of it in, the, yeah. in my thesis, if people want to see. It's still there. Well, actually, I haven't looked at it in, since? since COVID. Right. But, and it was slated for possible um, dist- destruction, whatever. Oh, it was? Mm-hmm. Oh. Somebody had bought the three houses and was possibly going to tear them down and rebuild. So if anyone's got a lot of money and can buy these houses, then... <laughs> Maybe do it. <laughs> I would love to go But they're right in. downtown Salt Lake City, right? Yeah, uh, 411 East, 100 South. Okay, so we can still drive by and see if it's still there. As of 2019. I haven't been there this since, <laughs> since yeah, since then. Okay. Um, so, so the idea was B.H. Roberts had questions about archaeology and geography and brought it to the 12, and then brought it to the intelligentsia, as you say, mm-hmm. and nobody had an answer? Is that basically yeah. the idea? Yeah. Yep, he brought... We don't know if... So he, the two sets of papers that he really... He really had two studies, and then the third set of papers is kind of to encapsulate the second study, um, where he... The first one is the physical evidence. The first set of papers you know, talking about horses and, and steel and barley and... All the issues we talk about today. <laughs> right. All of the things that everyone's like, what? Why? Anyway, he had already... He, this was, I think, from what I can tell, this was the first time that this issue was raised with church authorities saying, we might have a problem on our hands if we're looking for you know, accuracy, we've got anachronisms. And, you know, according to most people, one anachronism, if you, we know that Shakespeare wasn't living in the time of King Henry because when they talk about a bell tolling, there was not a bell, like clocks that have bells at that time. So, you know, it was not written in that period. Um, You know, if we talk about Abraham Lincoln talking on a cell phone, we would know that somebody more modern was writing that because you're writing something that only exists in modern times that didn't exist then, right? So anachronisms can be a real problem in historical documents. And he was realizing that this was going to be a real problem for the church. Um, So that's the first, yeah, that I think somebody had compiled it and said these are some issues that we're going to have to uh, attack and know what to do about because it's not, it's going to come up again. And actually the story that of this is that somebody wrote a letter and said, I have these questions, sent it to 
the first presidency, who passed it on and to general authorities. And his first letter was ignored. His name's William Ryder. His first letter was ignored. His second letter... Um, was Ryder a member? Yeah, William Ryder is the member, and he had uh, some questions from a Mr. Couch. Mr. Couch was out of someone he worked with during the summer who was a non-member and said, hey, I have these questions. So Ryder said, my friend Mr. Couch has these questions. What do you want me to tell him? And so he sent the original letter and then sent a follow-up letter and said, hey, I would really like to get the answer to my previous letter. And then he sent a third letter, and it looks like the third letter is the one that they finally attempted to answer. B.H. Roberts was given the letter and said, can you please answer this? And in his efforts to answer the letter to William Ryder, he compiled this document. And at the end of December of 1921, he he sent a letter to general authorities and said, we need to talk about this. And then he presented this 160 or so page document about... Um, all of the anachronisms that he could find in the Book of Mormon that he knew about, and things like linguistics. How can we have so many languages? Oh, the five questions. Ryder had a, had a series of five questions that he wanted answered, and they had to do with steel, scimitars, horses, linguistics, um, things like that. So those were the five things he asked, but then Beatrice Roberts was like, there's a lot more than what he just asked. And if he's asking, if people are asking, we should figure out an answer. So he Now, a scimitar, that's like an Arabic, kind of a curved sword. Is that right? Right. And so, to our knowledge, those don't exist in the Americas and have never existed, right? Right. And even, they were, even to this date, we haven't found anything like that. No. Right. They were a... Um, kind of a Muslim-type sword right? Um, back in the Middle East. And, um, yeah, they were not... And they they weren't invented until after Lehi and his family would have left Jerusalem. So for them to show up in the Book of Mormon would, again, be an anachronism. Like Abraham talking on the cell phone. Right, <laughs> right. It was like, these don't exist yet. So right. how could they be bringing them with them to the new world. Okay, and then silk was another issue. The, the, to our knowledge, that's only made in China, right? Yeah. And so how would that have gotten... So there's no silk making in America. S- steel swords. You know, I know a lot of apologists have tried to say, well, I've got this nice club with this volcanic, really mm-hmm. sharp stuff, which is true, but it's not made of steel, right? Right. And so, um, so we've got all these issues. Barley, the Native Americans didn't use barley. Um, and so, and then I think there was another issue about languages you had mentioned. If they came in 600, how did we get so many Indian languages? Right. You can't and, have that, the hundreds of languages after, in this short of a time, language doesn't change that quickly, especially a language that has been written as Hebrew had, if they had a written language that they could write on plates with, they had a stable enough language that it wouldn't have changed so quickly. Okay. It would have been impossible. Now, I know the current scholarship on that, uh, on the apologetic side, is that uh, the Lehites were a small group and that all these other people were already here. 
was that brought up as a possible solution for B.H. Roberts back then? Yeah. So actually, and I touch on this in my thesis, there was a geography meeting in, 19, in January of 1921. So they were creating a new, the 1920 version. I don't know how the meeting was in 1921, but it's a 1920 version of the Book of Mormon. They wanted to include maps of, you know, where Zarahemla is and things like that. And so they had this group gathered together to try to figure out how to do this map. And over the course of this, um, and B.H. Roberts was in these meetings, these map meetings, um, they determined that there was no place that they could put the map, that, you know, there's too many variables. But um, And one of the men in, in these intelligentsia meetings, his name's Willard Young. He's actually a, a grand, son or grandson of Brigham Young. Um, he was a map maker, and he was able to say, like, okay, if in this passage where they say they cross the thing in this amount of time, it can only be the maximum distance this can be is this. So he, you know, he was able to kind of determine what kind of features would need to be there in order to place the map in that place, and they just... So he created kind of an internal map? They were trying to. They were trying to. And at the end of these meetings, they were like, there is no place that we can put this. And somebody said, maybe we could just say, you know, it's in one small place. But there is a... Because I believe it was uh, Ivans. Was it Anthony Ivans? Mm -hmm. Was was he one of the first people to kind of propose a limited geography theory? Because originally it was like North and South America, right? Right. And that's what everybody believed. The entire continent. Hemisphere. That's the, the hemispheric theory. Yeah, the, the narrow neck of land was like Panama. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so Willard Young was among the people who said, uh, these distances are too large. There's right. no way this is going to happen. And Anthony Ivins as well. You're right. You remind me that. He, they, were, they were all trying to figure out how we can do this. But the limit, limited geography theory was rejected because there is a... A revelation. Well, there, there's Joseph Smith is quoted as saying that they landed in a certain place in South America. In Chile. In Chile. Thirty degrees south latitude. <laughs> That's right. Remember. Right. Thank you. Um, now, it said that it was in DNC seven, but I didn't see that in DNC seven. It wasn't in DNC seven. It okay. was the DNC seven, if I'm remembering correctly. And again, I wrote this a couple years ago. Right. My memory is the worst, and that's why. I'm a great historian because I can remember nothing. But from what I remember, DNC 7 was on the other side of this paper, was on the oh. same paper. So it was like if we are going to say that Joseph Smith's revelations... Because DNC 7 is about John the Beloved never dying. Okay. That was why I got confused. Okay, so it was on the other side of the paper. Right, it was on the same paper that DNC the revelation the came on. So it's like if we're going to throw this out, we have to throw this out. We can't keep one and ditch the other okay and so and he's saying maybe we, you know maybe we can but this is going to also be a problem because joseph smith himself believed this theory that all native americans are descended from the lamanites so you know if the prophet says that and if the prophet is the one that kind of saw this how do we discount the prophet without discounting the book of mormon so and that's a question we still have. <laughs> now, I don't know. Recently, I had Jonathan Neville on. He's, he's one of the Heartland Theory proponents. 
And one of his, because I, I had mentioned that exact point to him. I, I didn't realize it was tied to a revelation. That's interesting. His contention was that um, it was written in the hand of Frederick G. Williams, I believe. And so he said, well, we don't necessarily, it's not clear that Joseph Smith said that. Right. Do you agree with that? That is what they were arguing in 1922. Okay. Like, okay, well, if we're not going to take anything from his scribes, then should we throw out the whole DNC? Because DNC 7 was also written in Frederick G. Williams' handwriting. All of that, yeah. So it was like, if we're not going to take anything that his scribes have written in this, then we have, like, hardly anything left. So it's kind of like, we can't just pick and choose what we're going to believe based on what's most convenient. Uh-huh. That was... B.H. Roberts' argument at the time. And I believe Anthony Ivins was kind of also saying that they were like, this will be safer for us to leave it in mystery rather than take, then um, put it into the Book of Mormon, you know, nail it down. Because then people will go there, look for the evidence. Who knows if, what they'll find. Um, on top of that, in previous editions of the Book of Mormon, there were footnotes that would indicate, you know, oh, the Ripleyancum or whatever that word means many waters. This is, and it, the footnote would say the Atlantic Ocean or something like that. Um, this is in the 1920 Book of Mormon? These were taken out in the 1920 Book of Mormon. Oh, they Mormon. were taken out. So after, if you look in like a 1900 Book of Mormon, I don't remember what all issue years were, right. um, but if you look at previous editions before 1922 or 1920, they may have footnotes that refer, and I have this in an index in my thesis, like the footnotes that were removed. Yeah, yeah, I saw that. Um, so, yeah, they were a lot more indicating that we had, it we was a hemispheric was. theory, yeah. right? And they knew this, and people grew up believing this. It would kind of be like any of us, if the church suddenly changes a stance, you're like, wait, no, I mean... We are, this is settled, right? Um, and so was B.H. Roberts instrumental in getting rid of some of those footnotes? And said, I think you know, this, we yeah. We really don't know that this is the Atlantic Ocean. Right. This, this geography meeting, I think, is where they decided to take out all um, references to specific geography because they realized they could not set it down in any one place. Um, so, Yeah. I honestly think, actually, the limited geography, I'm thinking about um, Anthony Ivins. I think he was the one that was saying Yucatan might be the area. Yeah, yeah. Right? And that's limited. It's not the whole geography. He's trying to stay limited to just maybe a small part of the Yucatan. Right? If I remember right, because I've... All these geography theories are kind of my one of my favorite topics. Oh, really? <laughs> See, they just confuse me. I'm like, because <laughs> I mean, it's interesting. John Sorensen, who recently passed away, you know, he's kind of the dean of, of Mesoamerica now, um, and it was interesting to see how he handled this. With well, Joseph Smith said it was in Chile, and and the Yucat- and then there was some discovery in the Yucatan Peninsula and Joseph Smith's like oh see there's proof mm-hmm. and and Sorensen's idea was ah Joseph Smith had no idea what, where it was and so we're just going to 
fit the model the best we can, and he and so he thought it was Mesoamerica. What, what do you think of that solution? I think the brilliance of Joseph Smith was being so vague that people would debate it forever. He doesn't say anything well enough that anyone can say anything. It's just, I think it's all silly. Personally, I think where it's like debating where whether nine platform nine and three quarters really exists for muggles or not. You know, like we can't tell because we're muggles. Maybe if we were wizards, we'd be able to find this. To me, it's all fiction. So, you know, we're debating something that just doesn't matter. Okay. Um, and I, I personally believe that B.H. Roberts also got to that point because when he talks about, and I kind of started going there and then we got on a tangent, his second study was about where he could have found the material that would inspire him to write the Book of Mormon. He found different parallels in different books of his time and showed how he could have kind of gotten the Book of Mormon based on other things he was reading. So just kind of it was in the... He, he didn't even come up necessarily with this story, but then he placed it in these places. And Again, I just think somebody was very creative and inspired a lot of people who wanted a lot of things explained, and people really... I think it got out of hand. I think he was really surprised at how it went. Well, so, yeah, let's go there for a minute, because B.H. Roberts found a lot of parallels with View of the Hebrews. Now, I have to tell you, I started reading that book, and it was the most dry, boring book I've right. ever read in my life. And it's interesting that he went there because, of course, the earlier theory was the Spalding theory. Mm -hmm. um, that was like the 1830s, uh, you know, that supposedly Sidney Rigdon got the Solomon Spalding manuscript and got it to Joseph Smith somehow. Nobody knows how. Um, but that wasn't very convincing to B.H. Roberts? I guess not. I think that had been around it, for a long time. I, yeah. I think they had already kind of debunked it to some extent and thought, no, this isn't a copy. By then, I think he was a little more worried about View of the Hebrews. And what people don't understand about View of the Hebrews, people think it's some kind of fiction book that he copied. It's more, it was written more like, not quite a textbook, but maybe an archaeological textbook. It was, it was trying to be scientific. It wasn't trying to tell a story. But it wasn't it was, religious at all. No, it wasn't religious. It was someone trying to explain how um, so many, in his view, so many Native American people had um, parallel ideas to Hebrew or, you know, to Jewish customs and Jewish ideas and Jewish traditions. So he was trying to make all these connections and saying somebody must have come over from Jerusalem and and brought all of these things and You're brought all about these Ethan ideas. Smith, Ethan Smith, who's the author of View of the Hebrews. That's right. Right. Um, so yes, there are. I would not say that the Book of Mormon was plagiarized. That's not. And I don't think B.H. Roberts was also saying that. He's just, his actually, the other document, the third document, a parallel, is where he takes, you know, this happened in view of the Hebrews, this happens in the Book of Mormon. And he had at least 13, I think, that were like, you know, there's a Native American guy standing up on a wall preaching to people and, and getting shot at with arrows. 
you know, they have different names and they may say they're from different places and the arrows might be getting shot for different reasons. But, you know, if I'm going to write a book about a boy who wins a ticket to go to a candy factory, you will maybe assume that I had read Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. You know, there were so many parallels, it just felt like he maybe had, it was more like kind of an influence. inspired by, yeah. yeah. He's, B.H. Roberts was trying to show other influences besides angels. Yeah, because I will <laughs> say, I didn't find, I mean, I don't, I don't deny that there are probably parallels between View of the Hebrews and the Book of Mormon, but to me, they're so dramatically different in style, in you know, this is yeah. like King James English versus, I mean, 19th century English. Well, and people say the late war is another one. This is not B.H. Roberts. This is just right. the, you know, but other people were writing some kind of historically type, uh, kind of combining history and biblical talk to try to speak about history. And so that he may have been inspired with that style by the late war and with content by view of the Hebrews. Um, it's just mostly to show that it's possible that somebody could have taken these ideas from the milieu at the time and come up with these ideas and that they would sound familiar and plausible to everyone at the time. Okay. So I'm not, I, I don't think, I think Joseph Smith was a very smart guy and a good storyteller and he, he told stories, enjoyed doing it. He had, been telling these stories for years I think he'd kind of just developed his own view of, of what had happened and turned it into this tale and told it in a way that was really appealing to people I think if he hadn't lost the first the 121 pages we wouldn't even have an, we wouldn't even have a religion I think he started out writing a, a story you know trying to get an archaeological um, angle to it saying oh yeah I found this record and oh my gosh it matches what we already think isn't that cool um, but because the first portion of his book was lost he needed to find a way to retell it and he did it from a religious angle and <laughs> took off so a couple questions I have for you then um, are, first of all are you familiar with uh, Dr. William Davis and Visions in the Seer Stone no Oh, you're not? Because I think that came out after your thesis. One of his, uh, Dr. Davis, has, his training is in theater mm -hmm. and, and oral composition. And so he has, because, uh, you know, like Brian Hales and others are like, there's no way anybody could have written this. And William Davis has said, well... Actually, you know, Joseph was trained as Methodist exhorter, and he was trained in this, and there's these laying down heads, and, and so he's come up with a book uh, that, that tries to explain a lot of the oral composition. It doesn't get into the anachronisms and things like that. And he's tried to do it in a kind of a neutral way where um, it wouldn't be threatening to believers or non-believers, but it seems like it is threatening to some believers for sure. Yeah. So you don't have any opinion on, on oral composition methods? I, I definitely, that? oral composition, I've heard people talk about that, how he um, doesn't usually return to things. It's kind of always one way. He doesn't kind of, 
track backtrack and and that's kind of an oral composition way of talking about things um and clearly he did do this with at least I mean, even if you believe that he was reading from the plates, it was definitely written by scribes. He was not writing this himself. He was at least orally dictating that. So we know whether he was reading or just orally dictating, that's what happened. So it, there, that makes the most sense to me. I think he was just... And it, I don't think we all have to have that ability in order for that to be possible that Joseph Smith had that ability. You know, I may not be able to write like Stephen King, but that doesn't mean Stephen King can't write like Stephen King. <laughs> so he may have been really smart and really good at telling a story that has captivated people for 200 years now. But it doesn't mean it's impossible just because it's unlikely. Okay. Well, the other issue, or the other thing I wanted to just bring up was Don Bradley has written a book about the lost 116 pages, and he's tried to reconstruct what was likely in those pages. Mm -hmm. And he even said, uh, thinks that there might have been like temple ceremony stuff in there. Well, that would be convenient. <laughs> <laughs> because he doesn't talk about the temple at all in the Book of Mormon, so how do we get the temple? I don't know, but yeah, that would be convenient to be like, well, we don't have a record, but he definitely, I don't know. I'd, so I'd you, you don't buy that. Don's Don's argument there. Have I you have you had a chance to read his book? Or anything? I haven't. No. Okay. So I'm willing to be convinced, but I don't see how, especially if you're looking at Mormon modern Mormon temples, that was definitely an evolution. There's no way he was thinking about that before everything, and then not have any trace of it all through the rest until we get to Nauvoo or Kirtland, and then suddenly this theology pops up. I'm going to send you a link to the part about the Book of Ether. Don has some interesting parallels that I hadn't I hadn't considered until I talked to him, and I was like, hmm, interesting. And are so. these things that maybe were added later because there were a lot of revisions that happened, and as time went on he kept you know being like adding things back so if, are you looking at the first copy or are you looking at later copies well i mean he it, the story of of jared where um and the and the stones uh, you know that the finger of the lord touches those stones Don has a very interesting interpretation and i'm not doing it justice at all i, I will send you a link for sure <laughs> Um, but it, it, you know, he's like, this sounds a lot like the temple. Um, and so, uh, well, if it's, it's from the same brain, why not? Like, why couldn't have, you know, I'm not saying that Joseph Smith couldn't had it, have had similar ideas earlier, but I don't think they were necessarily temple. The temple wasn't fully, the, the idea wasn't fully formed before he ever started the church. I okay. would definitely say that would be an anachronism. In my historical point of view. All right. But well, that's a, if we're taking out miracles, sure, there could have been a miracle. When you add the idea that anything can happen and miracles are, you know, then why is anything impossible? And I'm taking it from a purely academic, logical point of view that if we're looking to see, if this is the first time this ever happened, then maybe sure, like, I'm not, I'm not, that doesn't convince me. Okay. 
Well, so it was interesting as you, because you kind of put a little biography together of there. How many people were in these, I, I'm going to say the intelligentsia meetings, <laughs> approximately? Total 21. 21. That's, that sounds about right. Um, Anthony Ivins, he was an apostle, right? Mm-hmm. And he was one he was of the, the second counselor. He was, oh, he was in the first presidency. Mm-hmm. And so he was one of the first to propose a limited geography theory clear back in 1922. 21. A, 21 as a possible solution to the hemispheric model problems. Right. Did he, was he more towards Yucatan Peninsula, do you remember? And so, okay. Yeah, the Yucatan. Do you have anything else to add about uh, Anthony Ivins on that? No, just he loved the, he loved that idea. But, well, I guess I could say a couple years or a few months later, he did give a general conference talk, even though he had an idea. He personally thought Yucatan was a possibility. He did give a conference talk that said, please don't try to nail this down anywhere. We can't know. It's supposed to be mysterious. So he himself was saying, don't, don't try to speculate. Although he was speculating. <laughs> who, I mean, it's fun. Speculation's always exciting. I mean, I, there's, there's like six or seven different models and I could geek out on those, but I won't do that. But I guess my question is, because, I mean, this is a little bit beyond your thesis. I know when, when you went on Mormon Stories with John DeLynn, it seemed like he was trying to make the case that, look, B.H. Roberts lost his testimony. They've known about this for a hundred years, and they still, you know, they're all lying, and <laughs> and they know that the Book of Mormon's fiction or whatever. Um, I don't. I do you? At least that was my impression of. of, of yeah, and I felt like I thing. had to keep pulling him back and being like, "Yo, okay, that's we can't say that exactly." <laughs> he was. And he, I, John it, was going too far with. I appreciate his was. enthusiasm, and I don't always disagree with what he was saying. But there were times that I was like, "We can't prove that," and I think personally, I like to give a little bit more grace to um, general authorities whose entire existence is the church. And when you undermine that, I mean, I've had so many conversations with Mormons who, when I present difficult information, they kind of shut down and say, I don't want to think about that. I want to forget about that. Why would these guys be any different? You know, I think even more so they're going to be more defensive of their belief and less able to really examine something that's going to destroy that. Right. So I feel like they were, I mean, weak maybe. And scared, maybe. Um, I do believe B.H. Roberts himself had lost testimony in the historicity of the Book of Mormon. I'm not saying he lost um, faith in the value of it, but I do think the historicity, you know, he just says this is a wonder tale written by an immature mind at some point in, in this paper. This looks like a wonder tale. He doesn't, he doesn't positively conclude, he says, disappears. And so would it be a fair statement to say that even though B.H. Roberts presented it to the apostles, and I know Joseph Fielding Smith was one of those and was very like, well, where science and religion disagree, I'm going with religion every time. Yeah. And And I think there were probably several like that, right? I think um, that is a reaction 
to something that you see this happen all the time when you have, say, a married couple and one of them does this deep dive and says it's not true. You'll find the other spouse often overcorrect and say, you know what? I'm not listening to anything. Faith is the only thing that matters. You know, they will shut off all logic and only go with faith. And so, I mean, I've seen this reaction lots of times. So I think Joseph Fielding Smith was having a reaction. I don't think, I think his, the amount of inflexibility that he had was a reaction, knowing that there's something that could break it on the other side if I let go of this line. So, yeah, I think he was that way. But I think that was partly, I think in some ways it's evidence that he was rocked by this uh, revelation. And, you know, these things that B.H. Roberts was saying. Which would lead to saying, hey, quit looking at the archaeology. It's just a rabbit hole. Who cares? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Because the other thought that occurred to me was, wasn't it in the 1950s, uh, Thomas Ferguson led a big expedition in Central America and we're going to find Zarahemla, and we're going to do this. Mm-hmm. And um, and I know in Thomas Ferguson's case, he kind of lost his testimony because he's like, there's no there's evidence There's no evidence, anything. yeah. But the church did fund that, and so I think it does lead, lead credence to, and I don't know how involved Joseph Fielding Smith was into, into that, because uh, he was an apostle forever, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and several of them were. Um, but it does lead to the idea that, oh, I know B.H. Roberts has presented us with some difficult information, but here, Thomas, take some money and go find yeah. Zarahemla. Yeah, let's... Because there was still a reaction that, well, we still think the Book of Mormon is mm-hmm. historical, right? I think B.H. Roberts is wrong. Wouldn't it be nice if we could just Prove make him wrong? him wrong rather than our entire religion and our entire existence, right? So, yeah, of course they're going to hope that we can uh, counteract what this troubling information is. So that doesn't surprise me that they would fund it. I don't think everyone just accepted what B.H. Roberts said at face value and just lost their testimony because, I mean, that would be pretty weak of them, you know, if their testimony was that shaky, that one meeting would do that. I think what they did was like, wow, that's really difficult and upsetting. I'm not going to think about this right now. I'm going to sit on it for a while. Put it on the shelf. Put it on say. the shelf, as they say. <laughs> yep. I think a lot of them put it on the shelf. And B.H. Um, Roberts kind of got stuck in a closet. And I mean, there are letters that I found 50, 60, 70 years later that were like, oh, I'd heard about these letters. You know, I've heard about the B.H. Roberts papers. They've been whispered about for decades in church hierarchy, and nobody wanted to touch them. They were really scared. So the fact that they were scared kind of shows that it was upsetting, but maybe put on the shelf because nobody wants to look any closer because, you know, there's a monster over there. Well, and it was also interesting to read through some of those biographies um, because, for one, you 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 mentioned that B. H. Roberts was a polygamist, which I think a lot of prob- people probably forget. You know, mm-hmm. I'm trying to remember what years he he lived approximately, but I believe you said that one of them was a post manifesto marriage. Is yeah, that at least about? yeah, one of them at for sure. One the one that his his favorite wife. Um, yeah, this that one was pretty far manifest post manifesto. I um, 
but yeah, his wives. It was before his other wives didn't though, know right? about it. Yeah. Um, it was before 1922. Yeah. Um, I, th- well, I talked about it because 1904 was when the second manifesto was issued, and that was. It was when... after 1904. Oh, it was after I 1904. Think. It was, and maybe, I can look it up, but. Um, well, one of his wives was, while you're looking that up, um, she was uh, in these meetings as, a, as one of the intelligentsia because she was, she was a smart lady. Yeah, she was a doctor. Yeah. She had been educated abroad, which meant out of Utah. They would send somebody <laughs> abroad to get an ad- education, and she was one of them. She was and a doctor. She so. was a, a gynecologist? If she I was a physician, right? but yeah, she, she was more likely to be... Um, treating women like a midwife or something yeah, but it wasn't, she, was, she was more than a midwife wasn't she um yes yeah, i mean she was a physician yeah. so at that time we didn't have specialties as much as we do now you know you can't say i'm an OBGYN and i only see this it was like i'm a physician and i see people but she was probably catered more towards women right mm-hmm. and, and childbirth yeah and that sort of yeah thing. lots of delivering children and things like that um Let's see. Because they were married before 1904. Okay. So it was after 1890. Yeah, that's what I thought. I believe it was after 1900, but it was before 1904 where they were like, no, for real this time, we're going to excommunicate. Because that was the Reed Smoot hearings. Right. And Joseph F. Smith, was it Joseph F., I think, got called into Congress. Yep. And uh, and he said, okay, we're going to start excommunicating you now. Yeah. Yeah, the post-second manifesto is when they got serious. The first manifesto, everyone knew it was a wink and a nod. Like, oh, yeah, we don't do this publicly. (laughs) (laughs) We'll just send them to Mexico. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. But even then, they didn't always send them to Mexico. It was still happening. But that is not what this thesis is about. But it's in the very interesting... Well, you touched on it, though. It was fun. I did touch on it, yeah. That was what was fun about doing this thesis, is it touched on so many things that I was just like, wow, this is such a perfect snapshot of of Mormonism at this time, as they're trying to navigate ending polygamy and trying to go more mainstream and coming out of the frontier and becoming, you know, like modern, having all the conveniences that people have. And so this was a big inflection point for Mormonism. So it was really cool to catch it. And again, they're starting to incorporate archaeology and like actual learning and and academia. And so they're like, how do we match this with academics? And, and I think that's why these meetings were so important because mm-hmm. most members of the church hierarchy were not educated abroad. They were old men by you know, 1922. So they had grown up usually on the front in frontier Utah. A few maybe had been educated, but most of them had been grown up and been in Utah their whole time on the frontier. So most of the hierarchy was not highly educated. And I think that's probably why B.H. Roberts or whoever put these meetings together called all of these people, and the majority of them had PhDs, again, which is really rare. In Frontier, Utah, you had to have permission to leave the state to get an education. So to gather these people was, it couldn't have just been some kind of book club. It was a specific, important meeting where these people who I couldn't find, except for a few of them, I didn't find them interacting in any of their other documents. 
it was just these people were all in this room for these meetings. And I only know that because a couple of people made a list of who was in these meetings. And we talked about, you know, Brother Roberts was there and we talked about Book of Mormon archaeology. So I know that that's what they were talking about. B.H. Roberts had just presented this. I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of people that can poke holes in, you know, there's a lot of, um, yeah, I can't, I can't prove beyond that these people met and that they talked about Book of Mormon geography in these meetings. Is it a coincidence that B.H. Roberts had just written this big document and presented to everyone weeks before? I don't think so. But if people are really trying to hold on to their testimony, they'll definitely make that argument. So I'm fine with that. I just wanted to present facts and show what I could and, right. and put as much out, information out there as possible and be as transparent as I could be. Well, and there were a couple other issues that I thought was really interesting. One of my favorite articles was uh, by Casey Griffiths, which you referenced in there, and I'll just say as a footnote, on the... Um, well, I think there were two things. There was the Chicago experiment mm-hmm. um, where they were trying to send CES teachers to divinity school mm-hmm. and the University of Chicago was so liberal it was the only place that would actually accept Mormons. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so there was this fundamentalist, modernist battle and you had Talmadge who was pro-evolution and an apostle and Widso and some of these other really highly educated and we still do have educated apostles in our day mm-hmm. but then you had the joseph fielding smiths and uh j reuben clark who was also educated but more of on the fundamentalist side right. don't well j reuben clark came in after these meetings so i think he's still reacting in some way but he was not part of this so i can't i kind of can't count him as one of the okay. apostles that i don't know I, he's I, an I, interesting I, character for sure oh for sure but um so there there the idea here is you've got these apostles fighting whether we should be modern and 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 use scriptural techniques and and embrace learning versus the fundamentalists that were like, hey, don't pay attention to that stuff. Joseph Smith's a prophet. Book of Mormon is true. Mm-hmm. That's all you need to know, right? Yeah. And so, um, can you talk about? Because I know you, you mentioned in the biography on on James Talmadge. The Talmadge was really quite pro-evolution, mm-hmm. but then he was a he, geologist. But when he became an apostle, he kind of had to tamp that down, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can, can you tell us more about that? Yeah, I do. I cover him in the in the thesis, so and I talk about a little bit about how he was definitely, as a geologist, he's like, "There's no way six thousand year old Earth does not work," and he actually talks about how. Well, so some of the, some of what we have. Is his son making arguments. His son was also a geologist. And we know he had consulted with his father on some of these and said, you know, is it okay if I write to Joseph F. Smith? So there's this kind of debate through letters with um, Sterling Talmadge. James Talmadge was a geologist. He was employed at um, the University of Utah um, as a geology professor. Um, and when he became an apostle, he had to give up his job as a professor and just kind of went on, you know, church, um, dedicated himself to that. Um, so we do know that he held beliefs in a in an older earth um, and evolution. And he and his son, in the letter to jo- um, Joseph Fielding Smith, point out that in Adam Di- on Diamond, that the altar that um, Joseph Smith said that Adam had 
um, prayed at, you know, uh, in the Garden of Eden, that that altar, that supposedly there was no death before there are fossils in this altar, all these rocks, in this type of rock that supposedly Adam had had um, used. So they're like, if the, there was doctrine that I don't think we talk about very often, there was no death on the earth until Adam fell. Like, you know, death was introduced with the fall of Adam. So how so would there be died, fossils? No trees died. No yeah. animals died. Yeah. Right. How would there be fossils in um, in the rock that was in the Garden of Eden? So he's like, we're going to have to like fix some of what we're. You know, we can't. We can't completely ignore science in in favor of faith. We really need to meld the two because we can't have one or the other. It's it's not going to work. Um, so yeah, he and his son, um, mostly through his son, because again, as as it, the twelve have a policy where they have to be united, and and you can't um, really speak out of turn. You can't correct someone who's more senior than you. Um, so he was. It was kind of bad form for James Talmadge to say anything to Joseph F. Smith, because Joseph F. Smith was higher, or Fielding Smith was higher in the hierarchy than. Talmadge. So, um, but his son, who is not a general authority, could say whatever he wants. So, um, <laughs> we do. He does mention that his his father had, you know, talked to him about it. So, um, and so that's why he had his son write to Joseph Fielding Smith mm-hmm. to try to get to change Joseph yeah, Fielding Smith's like mind. Joseph, yeah, we can't. He, yeah, he talks about how science. These things that, that you're saying that are in in these books, if we, science just doesn't allow that to be the case. So let's be a little more flexible. And he was like, absolutely, I will never be flexible. <laughs> so there's some good quotes in here. Um, I can't, you know, you'll just have to look. But just some of the things that Joseph Fielding Smith said were pretty classic. <laughs> I will never compromise. If I had to, I might, but I will never. So, yeah. Well, you know, and then it, there was another interesting thing um, in, I'm trying to remember who it was where you referenced this. You said that BYU lost, I don't know if they lost accreditation or they just weren't accredited. And there was a question over evolution and they fired a, a bunch of teachers and then a bunch of teachers resigned in protest. Yeah, they didn't teach science after 1911. Between 1911 and 1920, um, BYU just became kind of a teacher school um, because they didn't want to have to teach evolution um, they fired some teachers who didn't even teach evolution but believed in evolution. Um, and students were up in arms about it, saying, you need to teach us this. We need to be able to discuss this in the real world. You know, you can't fire people over what they're thinking if they're not even teaching it. But, yeah, um, there were four teachers that were censured. Two of them got fired. Two of them promised never to talk to like write or teach evolution and they get got to keep their jobs but it was a real uproar and they yeah just didn't teach science for a decade <laughs> did they have accreditation before then and, and lost it or did they I just never had it up to then i honestly don't remember i'm sure i cover whatever i knew at one point in here yeah. but um i think they just yeah i don't think they could get accreditation without 
teaching it, so they just said, well, you know what, we're not even going to teach it. We're going to drop that subject. And then they, so I'm trying to remember which prophet it was, but one of them put a new president at BYU and said, well, we've got we've to hire more PhDs. I remember... Yeah, this is the um, chapter about um, Franklin Stewart Harris. Okay. He was the president of BYU. So that chapter, I really go into the whole academic freedom debate that um, happened. Franklin Stewart Harris um, was the president of BYU. He had just become the president of BYU in 1920. And so he was, he was you know new to this but he was like we're going to get we're going to be a real university we're going to get national accreditation and we're going to have you know i think they had two professors with phds at that point i thought it was one and utah had 23 (laughs) yeah yeah that's right he they had one utah had two dozen and um so harris was really trying to get a whole bunch more on board and he had done you know half a dozen at least in the couple years he was really trying to recruit PhDs. and said we're going to actually teach evolution right yeah and said because you had to do that in order to get accredited yeah you had to have science that was fact-based not faith-based right so um he's like we'll teach what science says we're going to be a real university and teach what a real university teaches and have science and facts in our science classes um so he was he was really about um, the academics and he was going to take he was hoping to make BYU one of the best universities in the nation and that was his hope and that was his plan and he kind of did some people would say under his leadership it was uh, it was kind of the golden age for BYU of academic freedom and things like that so I believe that was under Heber J. Grant do you remember who the yeah was? Heber J. Grant was the prophet during at least that hired him and was for a while Heber J. Grant got a little more open to education and then within a decade kind of started getting hesitant and pulling back so and then uh, Harris ended up leaving and going to Utah State if, if I remember right Does yeah that sound right yeah once the they were he felt like the board of directors was really trying to control everything and shut down academic pursuits. It got really heavy there for a while, and he was like, you know what, I'm going to Utah State. So This whole did. issue of academic freedom has mm-hmm. been a problem for a century? Is that- it, it crops up every, like, you know, 25, 30 years. You know, they'll... They'll slam it down, and people will be like, this is terrible, and people will get afraid to talk and not say anything. And so even the ones that work there, they kind of get quieter and be more, you know, in line with faith. But then it doesn't last forever, and then it's just this pendulum that keeps swinging back and forth at BYU. (laughs) And that's kind of what I cover a little bit. Just the presidency of Franklin Harris started out on one end of the pendulum he swung it as far as he could to the other side and then they tried to push it back and he was like i'm out so that's a fun a fun little journey that we go on there i hope you enjoyed our conversation with shannon caldwell montez in our next conversation we're going to talk about richard lyman the apostle who was excommunicated for polygamy or was it adultery when they broke in they were like oh they were in bed together it's an apostle yeah. And I think they had, I mean, he was at least wearing his garments. He was uh, taken outside in just his garments in November in Utah. So, I mean, if the humiliation wasn't enough, it would have also been very cold. 
And, you know, it's, it's kind of surprising because, you know, given that he was wearing this sacred garments that people aren't supposed to be seen in, that, you know, they would be taking him outside, not giving him a robe, not covering him up. If you like what we're doing here on Gospel Tangents, please become a paid subscriber at gospeltangents.com or patreon.com slash gospeltangents. We've got full transcripts on our website at gospeltangents.com. And if you'd like to check out some of our other conversations, click over here. Thanks.